Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. We made it to Wednesday. It's April 7th. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Here's how we're making you smarter today. Is America losing its religion? Plus, just what exactly does a Senate parliamentarian do? But first, today's one big thing. Kids and COVID. We're learning a lot more about kids in the coronavirus, including from the CDC, which is monitoring a rise in COVID cases among children. Marisa Fernandez covers healthcare for Axios. Good morning, Marisa. Good morning. How concerned are experts with the rise in cases among children? So experts are really concerned with coronavirus spreading in general. I think when it comes to kids, they are keeping a close eye on what's going on in terms of the cases. There's not a lot of times where kids get regularly tested unless they are in a school or in a program that is dedicated to that. So what we are watching and what scientists are telling us to watch is that we have schools reopening and we have variants of concern that may or may not be spreading more easily among children. What do we know about how effective vaccines will be for young people? I'm thinking about under age 18. Yeah, absolutely. So all three vaccines that are available in the U.S., so Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson, are conducting their own clinical trials in children to test antibody response in kids and then also dosing levels. And scientists are anticipating vaccines to be ready for adolescents age 12 to 16 by this summer. And then by early 2022, We're hoping that 5- to 11-year-olds' vaccinations will be open, and then for babies, maybe sometime shortly after that. That's the timeline, but then a lot of people are trying to ask, at what rate do we need children to be vaccinated in order for us to have herd immunity? And I think a lot of people are just saying that that's the reality, is that some experts are pretty weary that the lack of their vaccination could prolong the pandemic. And children were not the initial target for the COVID vaccine because so few appeared to get sick. But others are telling me they fear a future variant could emerge that would evade the current vaccines or even cause worse disease in children. Marisa, we've got a new Axios Ipsos poll that came out yesterday that said almost half of American parents are not planning to vaccinate their children. How do you think parents should be thinking about this? The longer it takes for a child vaccine to be available, the longer it will take for us to address the concerns that parents have. And the concerns that parents have are the unknowns, which is the side effects. Will this actually work? What is the risk that I'm putting, you know, my child in by having them take this vaccine? And one of the best tactics I'm told by scientists is that to beat vaccine hesitancy is word of mouth. And this includes the schools and social circles that parents and kids are involved in. And that just simply can't happen until a vaccine actually enters the market. Marisa Fernandez covers healthcare for Axios. Thanks, Marisa. Thank you. We'll be back in 15 seconds with how Americans are moving even farther away from organized religion. Welcome back to Axios Today. New research shows that less than half of Americans belong to a church, synagogue, or a mosque. It's an accelerating trend that could affect our politics and our social lives. Axios' future correspondent Brian Walsh is here to tell us what this could all mean. Good morning, Brian. Good morning. How does this compare to previous generations of Americans? This is really quite a sharp drop. Gallup, which is the company that did the poll, has been looking at membership of religious organizations now going back to the 30s. 
And really from 1937, when they started up until 1999, it never dropped below 70%. And then just really over the last 15 years or so, you've seen an increasing drop in the percentage of Americans who say they actually belong to some kind of house of worship. And now we're getting to the point where fewer than 50% of Americans say they actually do belong to a church, a mosque, a synagogue, anything like that. And this is all pre-COVID. This was taken before COVID. Obviously, people would think instantly that because you couldn't go to your house of worship, maybe that was responsible for this drop. But in fact, we'd been seeing that for years before this. So it's not really connected there, too, although I would say from talking to other people that probably didn't help either. Ryan, how much of this is a reflection of the spiritual but not religious category many people put themselves in? I think it's a really great reflection of just that. It's important to understand that just because people say they don't belong to some kind of house of worship, it doesn't mean they don't have religious feeling. This is more of a function of a lack of trust institutions, a lack of willingness to belong, really. We, we see this, I think, in other areas of social life as well. You can tie it into the internet. You can tie it into a general sense of a lack of trust in the kind of hierarchical system you have in a lot of organized religions. So I think that all really does play a role. So is there something else that's taking the place or the role of religion for these people? For a lot of Americans, I think you're seeing this get subsumed into politics in some ways. It's really instructive, I think, to look at things like the climate movement or Black Lives Matters, for instance. It's really interesting to see that the civil rights movement in the 1960s and really for you know most of history after that was on the back of the black church. That was the key social institution that drove those changes. Now you have Black Lives Matter, much less overtly religious. And I think you're seeing that same language, though, that you might see in religion with appeals to justice, appeals to creating a better world here, as opposed to waiting for a better world in the afterlife. Basically, there's less of a trust in the sense that religion is something I can belong to. Rather, those feelings, they might go into something like, honestly, exercise, anything. I mean, the, the nature of the internet has made it much easier to choose whatever practice you want. So whatever that kind of God-shaped hole that you might feel, it can get filled with a lot of different things that just wasn't possible as recently as, you know, 1999. There's so much information in Brian Walsh's story, which you can find at Axios.com. Brian Walsh is Axios' future correspondent. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. A new decision from the Senate parliamentarian would allow Democrats to pass President Biden's infrastructure plans with just a simple majority, which begs the question, what is a Senate parliamentarian? That's why Axios' managing editor of politics, Margaret Taleb, is here to demystify this for us. What is this role? Nyla, the Senate parliamentarian is a woman named Elizabeth McDonough. Reputation is a political independent, and she's only the sixth Senate parliamentarian since this job was created in 1935. But here's what you need to know. The House and the Senate each have their own. One of them or their staffs is always on the floor of those chambers when they're in session for any procedural questions. And they are there to answer questions on the floor, behind the scenes, from individual lawmakers. They can be overruled. What they say is not binding. They are not elected officials. They can be overruled by the presiding officer of the Senate. She has made rulings that have made Democrats very unhappy and Democrats very happy, Republicans very unhappy and Republicans very happy. And she has bipartisan fans. One other interesting, really, bit of trivia. Remember the January 6th assault on the Capitol? It was one of the Senate parliamentarians on Elizabeth McDonough's staff who grabbed the box with the votes needed for certification when they were evacuated from the Senate. 
they really occupy a special role in the history of the way legislation is passed and history is kept in the U.S. Congress. Margaret Tellev is Axios's managing editor of politics. One last thing before we go. Yesterday, Axios recap host Dan Primack spoke with Atlanta's Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms about all the national attention the new Georgia voting laws are receiving. I think a national standard is needed. Again, look at the Georgia voting bill. Uh, They stripped the secretary of state of power because they weren't happy with decisions that he made during the election. I also think it's a cautionary tale to other cities and states that if you dial back on access to voting, that there will be fallout that's going to impact people on both sides of the aisle. You can hear the entire interview by checking out Axios Recap. That's it for us today. You can reach our team at podcasts at axios.com or find me on Twitter. I'm Nyla Voodoo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you back here tomorrow morning.